There is a much-quoted passage in the New Testament, of which I'm very fond, though not entirely for the reasons the passage usually attracts attention. It is the opening of the Gospel of St. John, and it's generally heard, particularly this year, in this famous translation. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Now, uh, originally, I was going to read you the Greek, the original Greek. However, I printed this out on a friend's computer, and my carefully imported Greek dictionary produced gobbledygook. So in the Greek, which unfortunately I can't read and I do not have by heart, the word in the King James Bible translator's version of the Greek logos is more interestingly, in my view, also translatable as narrative or story. And the passage can as well be translated like this. We all know the King James Bible version is the most beautiful translation, but it's not necessarily the most accurate. So, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, can as well be translated. In the beginning was the story, and the story was God's, and God was the story. God, then, the Gospel may be telling us, is not so much a story in the sense of something false and made up, but the narrative of the whole of the creation, a vast story or series of stories in which the human participants, that is us, live and move and have their being, a conclusion which would enrage a Christian fundamentalist but is rather congenial to a novelist. So I want to begin by suggesting that the history of human consciousness is in fact a great story, or like the Bible, a collection of stories linked loosely and sometimes contradictorily together. We are all part of an enduring story, the history of humankind, and within that larger story, our own individual stories unfold. And from time immemorial, as long as we have records of recorded human history, stories have been our fundamental way of coming to terms with the world we inhabit, our experience of others who also inhabit it, and our own experience of those other consciousnesses. Now, long ago when I taught in adult education, I used to take a class on myth. And I generally started by asking my students to try and define myth. Various stabs at a definition were made until the moment came when I, slightly smugly, would declare, a myth is a story which gives us the facts. Of course, the the facts a a myth gives us are not the refutable so-called facts of scientific experiment. They are of a different order of being, but nevertheless, they are crucial facts, essential data of human consciousness projected into narratives that resonate with some abiding meaning. 
Over the years during which I've worked as a teacher of literature for university students, for adults and children, as a Jungian psychotherapist and, more recently, a novelist, I've been coming to the view that just about everything, not merely mythic narratives of existential significance, but almost all of human intellectual imagination and cultural endeavour, is really story. It has become part of the current regrettable slanging match between the religious and scientific fundamentalists, and as Terry Eagleton brilliantly points out, they meet at opposite ends of the spectrum. For the scientific fundamentalists to use the terms myth or story as part of their weaponry with which to attack the value of religion. Stephen Hawkins, in his latest book, describes the myths of religion as, quote, childish attempts by the primitive mind to make sense of the world, a view which was shared by the founder of psychoanalysis, Sigmund Freud. Of course, that is exactly what a myth or a story does. It attempts to find coherence and meaning in inchoate human experience. But what Hawkins, and indeed Freud, fail to observe is that this is equally true of their own disciplines. Everything we human beings know, or think we know, if we think about it, is story. News and current affairs are stories for sure. Even the most respectable and unlurid newspaper reporting is nothing better than a series of stories. In a programme I did recently in conjunction with The Guardian, I suggested that the facts of myth were a whole lot more reliable than anything printed in The Guardian newspaper. <laughs> Which actually they didn't edit out. I rather expected them to. I gather it's still in. History is no more than many different stories told from many different angles about events which can never now be accurately verified since the events themselves have passed. And in any case, even should there be be witnesses to give testimony to verify their so-called truths, the witnesses, as any court or family therapist will confirm, will only have their versions or stories of these inherently unverifiable events. Psychoanalysis, once my own profession and a very good training for a novelist, is all about stories. The stories people tell of themselves, the stories they unconsciously tell themselves, the stories they rewrite as they attempt to make sense of their lives. And as many commentators have observed, Freud's so-called case studies read much more like short stories. And when there have been attempts to check these so-called facts of his case studies, it has been held against him that they don't quite square with the story he has told us. I don't hold that against him myself, as I have never, unlike Freud, pretended that psychoanalysis was a science. But you see, even science is a story, one that is constantly being rebutted and revised but nonetheless, it is still a story which gets altered and added to with each 
passing generation. One day the world is flat, next day the world is round. Newton explains the law of gravity, Einstein rewrites it. And quantum mechanics puts even Einstein into doubt, and so on, and so it will continue. And of course, all known religions begin with a story, are composed of oral and then later literary stories, and are nearly always observed by the ritual acting out of a story. All over the world, on the Sabbath, Jews celebrate the passing over of the angel of death when their forebears were captive in Egypt. All over the world, Christians may be found eating the body and drinking the blood of their God. Our secular drama is founded in the 5th century Athenian religious festival, the great Dionysia, where the poets competed in honour of Dionysus, the twice-born god who was killed and born again out of his father's thigh. So these are the fundamental stories that have informed most civilizations, and of course there are many others that I could talk about. But clearly there are stories and stories. Even within the limited class of stories which we call drama, poetry, and fiction, there are a very wide range of different values. Most people, for example, would distinguish between Dan Brown and Homer, or even, I hope, Dan Brown and Sally Vickers. There are, however, some essential similarities between Homer, Dan Brown, and Sally Vickers, which it would be a mistake to dismiss. All three writers in different ways, and probably with different degrees of success, entertain. Entertainment has become rather a debased literary ambition. I think wrongly. For the meaning of the word entertain is far deeper than it has come to seem. Entertain means admit, cherish, receive as a guest. It thus has close connections with hospitality, one of all civilization's most ancient and fundamental laws. So a story which entertains us does not simply distract us from life's quotidian miseries, but it also takes us into itself and nurtures and nourishes us. No story worth its salt survives if it doesn't entertain. I think there's an evolutionary element to stories. The survival of the fittest and entertainment is an essential ingredient in a story's survival. Now this entertainment is something more than mere escapism, though there's nothing wrong per se, by the way, in escapism. There is no moral requirement for a story to be improving. Though I, I love the Sarkisi story, you probably know it. Um, I call it the improper story, but um, it's a story about uh, a man who entertains some children on a train with a, a story that their aunt imagines is going to be improving and is very disimproving. <laughs> there is no moral requirement for a story to be improving, though I do believe if a story is no more than a distraction, it's liable to leave 
a reader feeling obscurely hungry, like living on a diet of popcorn or cocaine, though of course many people do avail themselves of just such a diet. But an escape from the self is by no means necessarily escapist. It may also be an escape from the limitations of the ego. It's no accident that most people learn to read about the time, four, five, six years old, when the concept of otherness and other people is being established. And stories are absolutely crucial in this process. It is part of the sad mystery of being a human being that it is impossible ever finally to know another human being. But this is much more possible in stories. This is because in stories we are given a kind of God's eye view of a character's processes of thought, consciousness, emotion or development. Voltaire famously said that men invented language to hide their thoughts. But a good story, whether told or read, will do the opposite. So that the insights which we may be prevented from having in ordinary lived lives, because as we have such defensive tendencies to conceal ourselves from each other, or parts of ourselves from ourselves, These thoughts are made patent in the case of fictional characters. These otherwise unknowable thoughts. We do come to know Oedipus, Long John Silver, Cleopatra, David Copperfield, Jane Eyre, Medea, Tom Jones, Tom Kitten, Anna Karenina, Lord Jim, Lolita, in ways that we can never really know our partners children, or our closest friends. Not even the most acutely perceptive and intuitive psychoanalyst can draw from his or her client or patient the kind of subtle information we are granted through the perception of a great novelist, poet, or playwright. But through our knowing these both less and more lifelike beings, we paradoxically, come to know our flesh and blood associates and ourselves more thoroughly and intimately. So, a good story does naturally, through the medium of the imagination, what religion and ethics does by prayer or precept. It encourages us, not so much by example, but through vicarious experience, to grasp and value the otherness of others and to enter into states of being otherwise denied us. This is one of the crucial elements in the abiding power of stories. In the first instance, that act of entering into the consciousness of another, albeit a fictional other, offers a respite from the preoccupations of one's own concerns and the substitution of a preoccupation with the concerns of others. If you will forgive my quoting my own novel, Mr. Golightly's Holiday, who does not long to be released from the cramp of self-obsession and the prison of self-regard? To get outside ourselves is a freeing activity. A good story also enlarges our universe or experience. That enlargement may entail entering another location or period in history 
or an arena we would otherwise be ignorant of. This, I think, explains the popularity of the historical novel or the biography, which suggests another appeal of stories. We learn from them. This learning has nothing to do with any conscious program of improvement or growth, though both may come of it along the way. Education, as people are never tired of saying, is a process of leading out. And it's partly this process of being led out which is educational in a story. And it is partly what one is led into. What one is led to can take a variety of forms, a particular place, time, or location. More potently, as I've been suggesting, it is the intimate knowledge of other human beings (coughs) which informs the learning process. Very often, it is not one thing or another, but a cocktail. Few of us here, I imagine, would read the Iliad in order to acquire a knowledge of the military procedures of pre-Hellenic Greece. But along the way, we would certainly learn a good deal about archaic armour, battle strategy, ships, and the ancient art of soothsaying. More crucially, we would learn a good deal of interesting human psychology. Some of that discovery might be quite novel. For example, Homer's heroes, pretty much every man jack of them, at the slightest hitch or setback, sit and weep. Achilles, the poem's central figure, is always at it. Deprive him of a slave girl or put his nose even slightly out of joint, and sure as eggs, we will find him sitting on a rock, weeping, generally wanting his mother. (laughs) And he's not alone. His colleagues, Patroclus, Ajax, Menelaus, weep. Their enemies, the Trojans, Hector, Paris, and Priam, king of Troy, also weep when they are frustrated or thwarted. From this we learn some anthropology, that in the period of Homeric Greece, which was probably around 800 BC, it was not an anomaly to be a hero and weep. It looks very much, in fact, as if weeping is part of what heroes did. Just as they took slaves and made them their concubines and threw young children willy-nilly from battlements. However, although we may learn these and other interesting facts, I doubt if it's the true source of our pleasure in the Iliad. If we read or listen to it other than for simple curiosity or as a kind of dutiful school or university exercise, I suspect we do so because, for all the ways in which it emphasizes our difference from the ancient Greeks and Trojans, the more compelling fact is that it defines our likeness to them. When Hector bids farewell to his wife Andromache and his young son Astyanax on the battlements of Troy, he weeps not as an ancient hero might, but as a man who knows that to fight Achilles is to risk death, and yet to fight him is what he has to do. Equally, when Achilles learns that his dearest friend Patroclus has been killed by Hector, His grief and rage are entirely comprehensible to us. And when, as a consequence, he enjoins battle against his best friend Slayer, he does so knowing, because he has been forewarned, that this will lead ultimately to his own loss of life. And again he weeps, 
for the dolorousness of life, for the awful things we do to each other and the consequences we seem unequal as human beings to prevent. The Iliad has two scenes which for me are two of the finest moments in all literature. One is when the grief-stricken Achilles, in mourning for his friend Patroclus, has the body of Hector, Patroclus's slayer, dragged round and round and round again his dead friend's funeral mound. The second is when the figure of Hector's father, King Priam, comes by night in a mule cart to beg Achilles to return the body of his son for decent burial. Although these two scenes are set in a time which is wholly unlike our own, although although wars fought for insubstantial reasons are to be sure not unknown today, what is striking is their wholly recognisable universal quality. Achilles' senseless dragging of Hector's dead corpse round Patroclus's funeral mound is a brilliant image for the sterile yet savage patterns of revenge with which we are all too familiar today in Iraq and Afghanistan. Patterns which are reflexive, take us nowhere and become a kind of pointless ritual of self-assertion. From this we understand absolutely how wounded and mortified Achilles is. And we can infer, too, that he also feels guilt because his friend has, in fact, been slain in his place when he has pettishly refused to fight. And when the old King Priam comes without the trappings of state and falls on his knees and kisses the hand of his dead son's killer, how extraordinarily human and touching this is too, and who can be deeply moved, who can fail to be deeply moved and touched by it, as indeed Achilles himself is. What interests me is how in moments like these we learn something new which is at the same time wholly familiar. We learn something about the character of Achilles, maybe what makes him a real hero, rather than, like his colleague Ajax, a mere fighting machine. But we also learn something about humankind. One of the things we learn is that human nature doesn't change very much. Indeed, this was part of the point of my own novel, Miss Garnet's Angel. As some of you may know, in that novel, I juxtapose a very ancient story, Tobias and the Angel, with a very modern one. The ancient story which isn't mine at all, probably dates back to 722 BC when the northern kingdom of Israel was sacked by the Assyrians and the inhabitants were led off into permanent exile. The story tells the tale of how the pious Jewish exile, Tobit's son, Tobias, travels to Medea to collect a family debt, accompanied by a manservant, allegedly one Azarias, but in reality, the servant is the archangel Raphael, one of the seven angels who fly in and out before the Holy One. And at the end of the story, he reveals his true identity. The contemporary story, in this case created by me, reflects and recapitulates the very ancient one. And in doing this, 
I was trying to do something which is demonstrated in the project which some of us have been involved with in translating Spencer's Fairy Queen into a litany for an audience at first sight quite different from that of Spencer's. At the end of the book, Miss Garnet reflects, perhaps when a thing is true, it goes on returning in different likenesses, borrowing from what went before, finding new ways to declare itself. The story of the Fairy Queen and the Red Cross Knight, the story of Achilles and Hector, the story of Tobias and the Angel are very old stories, but when we read them, two things happen. If they are good stories, they bring us up against the unfamiliar, the strange, and the new. But if they are even better stories, they remind us of the powerful and myriad ways in which we are like each other the resonances which exist even across time and culture, the stretch from Assyria in 722 BC to the present day, and which bind people together and assure us of the interconnectedness of humankind and the essential sameness of the human spirit. Stories may in fact be part of a wider evolutionary process. They take us out of ourselves but they take us also to and into ourselves. And in that process, our humanity is tested and we are perpetually recreated. One of the ways of doing this is by making us conscious of something which we knew already, but only in some vague and inchoate way. The author, or narrative voice, or more commonly the characters of the book or drama, will give voice to or enact and thus clarify and give form to an unconscious or perhaps pre-conscious knowledge. A good example of this is in Dostoevsky's Crime and Punishment, where the principal character, Raskolnikov, an impoverished student, conceives a plan to murder a stingy old pawnbroker whose worth, he feels, counts for nothing. He does it in order to get money, money he needs in order to survive. It is essential to the point of Dostoevsky's story that Raskolnikov is not a villain, but a rather moral young man who nevertheless believes it's appropriate and acceptable to make this kind of utilitarian value judgment about a fellow human being. As you will remember, he murders this undeniably nasty old woman but is surprised in the act and finds himself also murdering her sister, a wholly innocent and slightly half-witted creature who stumbles inadvertently upon the violent scene. The entire rest of the novel is taken up with Raskolnikov's punishment, which is not so much the tracking down and final condemnation of him at the hands of the investigator of police, but the tracking and condemnation by him of his own newly aroused conscience and consciousness, the inner police force of the mind. Raskolnikov comes up against something which most of us, if we are lucky, are unlikely to have to face in such a brutal way, that life is sacrosanct in a way that is deeper than any utilitarian argument. At a profound level, we know this, but the story allows us to know it more completely more forcefully, 
arguably even more fully and forcefully than if we had committed Raskolnikov's crime ourselves, because Dostoevsky shows us, through the example of his character, what we might otherwise be too defended to comprehend, in fact, almost certainly would be too defended to comprehend. As Emerson says, crime and punishment grow out of one stem. And he goes on to say, all infractions of love and equity in our social relations are speedily punished. They are punished by fear. This fearfulness, which we share, albeit at a remove from the protagonist, seems to be a far remove from my initial simple requirement of stories, that we be entertained. And yet, there is something entertaining about fear, or being made to experience fear, as the superabundance of thrillers published today shows. It is interesting that most of us know, whether it's Dostoevsky or Patricia Highsmith, the enjoyable factor is in being made to experience this kind of vicarious fear. Now, what is the reason for this? Is it merely the fact that we are tucked up safe in our beds and not lodged in some miserable garret in Russia waiting for a crime we have committed to be discovered? Are we simply undergoing a slightly sadistic process in which a character is made to suffer for our greater enjoyment? I don't think that's entirely it. I suggest a rather subtler effect is at play here too, one that I'm going to call the scapegoat factor. I think one important element in why we read is to experience vicariously those things which we cannot and mostly would not wish to experience firsthand for ourselves. Now, I know a little more about this now that I've become someone who writes stories as well as reading them. One of the reasons I think I write is to explore hidden selves. There are various things I can never be. I can never be, by nature at least, a man, for example, or be 21 again, or a virgin. And there are various things I would never, could never be and wouldn't want to be, a rapist, a murderer, or a dental hygienist. <laughs> I do hope there are none of you in the audience. (laughs) But when I write, I can be any of these things, provided I can find the inner spring which illustrates that part of my undisclosed self. When we read or listen to stories, I believe something similar happens. We read about Raskolnikov with fascination because there is a sense in which he has committed the murder for us. Or about Humbert Humbert, the protagonist in Lolita, because he is a paedophile for us. It is not that, for the most part, we want secretly to murder or have sex with underage girls, although I can't speak for all of you, of course. (laughs) But neither are these activities wholly foreign to our nature and therefore to our imaginative interests. It is, after all, other human beings more like ourselves than we may want to admit who do these things, and we need to know about them in order to understand better the recesses of our own hearts. This may be a clue as to why books which take dark and terrible themes are often considered to be superior than those which take lighter-seeming ones, incidentally a value judgment which I don't share, 
I think the world is made up of light and dark, and what we need is a balance of the two in our artistic endeavours. But it is true that sex and death, both fairly terrible themes in their potential outcomes, are two of our fundamental preoccupations. Eros and Thanatos, in fact. And we come to know with a kind of insider's knowledge what it is to murder or to be a paedophile. Because Dostoevsky and Nabokov have bodied it forth for us in such a way that we participate in the consciousness which has murdered or had obsessive sexual fantasies about a prepubescent girl. This, as I say for me, is the heart of the matter, that stories give us an education into the varied and contradictory content of the human heart. Contradictoriness, like ambiguity, its close cousin, is another thing that great stories give us an insight into. In Great Expectations, which is one of my touchstones, Dickens gives us a double narrative voice, the voice of the adult Pip and the voice of the boy whose life he is describing and which, as he describes it, also unfolds before us. As we read, we get to know both the old and the young versions of the composite person who is called Philip Pirip or Pip. And we come to feel for the innocence and good-heartedness of the young boy and for the naivety and snobbishness of the young man. And finally, for the reflective sorrow of the mature Pip, who has described for us his own moral progress with all its ups and downs. Now here, too, is something we can never do in a lived life. Kierkegaard famously said that it was part of life's tragedy that while it must be lived forwards, it can only be understood backwards. We go along through life in a bungling kind of way. And to quote Miss Garnet again, I have come to see that bungling is what all of us do. Perhaps bungling is what we are here for. But how much better to have someone do some of the bungling for us? I'm sure you all know the story of Dickens' novel, how Pip, as a young boy, meets and helps an escaped convict, Magwitch, how he is rewarded by the convicts, bestowing upon him, without Pip's knowledge, a vast fortune, which Pip erroneously believes has come from quite another source. Miss Havisham, the eccentric, man-hating recluse, whose ward is Estella, the proud and beautiful young girl who will become the ill-starred love of Pip's life. As we read, Dickens does something incredibly clever because we at one and the same time share and yet distrust Pip's delusions. We share his desires. We want it to be for him as he yearns for it to be. And yet we feel there is something wrong in his interpretation and his attendant moral attitudes. So we become both the innocent and the knowing Pip at one and the same time. By definition, we cannot, in the process of living, be innocent and knowing simultaneously. This is one of the ways in which art, which is always a comment and never an exact reenactment of life, is able to ride two horses at the same time. A sense of danger is inherent in Dickens' story, and as we read it, we become aware of how easy it is to draw false conclusions about ourselves 
and others. And because of what Jung called our shadow side, the unacknowledged element in all of us, which is the negative reflection of our better selves, and through the false prism of wishfulfillment, the projection of our own desires. Reading Great Expectations is a kind of homeopathic vaccination against that danger. If we read it well, we get a strong enough sniff of danger to be more conscious of the unknown perils of complacency, false knowingness, materialism, and snobbery. Great Expectations is the story which taught me another great truth, which is that we are, at some level, our brother's keepers. The phrase you will all recognize is the rhetorical cry of Cain when he is asked for the whereabouts of his brother Abel, whom he has just murdered. The Old Testament author was an ironist, and as a writer whose irony is often missed, I sympathize because the phrase is designed to indicate its opposite. We are all our brother and sister's keepers in the sense that their lives are and always must be seen to be as valid and sacrosanct as our own. This relates to the truth that we apprehend through Raskolnikov's life error. The young Pip meets the convict Magwitch by accident, but he cannot just because he didn't will the meeting, undo its reality. Its significance, Dickens shows us, lies in the fact that any meeting between people alters the patterns of the participants' lives in ways that can never be undone. Bidden or unbidden, they are there, as Jung said of the gods. And so they are in any human encounter. When Pip has been made a gentleman by his anonymous benefactor, He doesn't want to know the hungry convict he unwillingly aided. In fact, he is deeply repelled by him. But he cannot, through his reluctance and distaste, unburden himself of that relationship. His connection to Magwitch is contingent on an accident of time and place, but its impact is such that it takes on an irreducible moral significance. And in fact, if we read the book carefully, we can see that this theme, the vital and inescapable responsibilities we have towards our neighbours, is repeated throughout the novel. Dickens would have agreed with the desert father who said, we live and die in our neighbours. Here again, in a very telling example, is a small insight into what happens when we read a great story. If we are lucky there suddenly looms into vision the large and lofty principles, call them moral laws, if you like, under which, if our life is to have meaning, and of course there is no obligation to endow our lives with meaning, we must live. The late, great Penelope Fitzgerald put it well when she says, when we catch sight of certain human figures and faces, especially certain eyes, expressions and movements, when we hear certain words, when we read certain passages, thoughts take on the meaning of laws. These laws are not always very congenial to us. They were not to the adult Pip when he discovers them, but in our bones we know there is truth and reality in them, and they relieve us of the terrible burden of meaninglessness which may otherwise afflict us 
And this brings me to another important role which stories have. The famous old cigarette ad told us, you are never alone with a strand. <laughs> By the same token, you are never alone with a great story. A great story, like a great human being, not only adds to our understanding, perhaps more importantly, it understands us. With our firmer selves, our more pioneering, braver, and more capacious selves, we, we read stories, however imperfectly, to understand ourselves and others and the world we all madly inhabit. But in our frailer, more apprehensive, more wanting and secret selves, we read to be understood. A great story not only enriches our understanding, it makes us, even in our most shadowy, inchoate, and recessive parts feel comprehended or that we are capable of being so and moreover in a light which while it may be searching is at the same time merciful. There have been times, I'm sure I'm not alone in this, when family or even close friends have failed the urgency of a particular crisis. When the words of George Eliot or Conrad or Henry James or the sensibilities of the characters they have brought into being have comforted and sustained me. If only through a sense, which can only be matched by the rarest human associations of companionship. To summarise, stories lead us away from ourselves, our own concerns and preoccupations, but then it is through stories that we find ourselves and explore and, if possible, understand suppressed or nascent or potential elements in our own natures, as well of those as those of others we might not otherwise know. Stories help to find and feel our connectedness with disparate parts of ourselves, but also disparate places and times, and to overcome a kind of existential loneliness, which has nothing to do with how good or bad our immediate relationships are, but much to do with the ways we human beings trap ourselves, as Freud knew, within opaque and impenetrable personas. When we tell a child a story or give someone a book, we also give them the prospect of a whole new set of thoughts and experiences. Stories act as an evolving, ever-renewing link between people who might otherwise never come to know each other. The rise of book clubs and reading groups is a testimony to this. And it is no accident that most tyrannies begin by burning books. I quoted earlier the late Penelope Fitzgerald's last novel, from, uh, fr from the late F Penelope Fitzgerald's last novel, The Blue Flower. I want to end by repeating that quotation with a small addition which, for me, sums up the spirit of stories. When we catch sight of a certain human figure and face, especially certain eyes, expressions, movements, when we hear certain words, when we read certain passages, thoughts take on the meaning of laws, a view of life true to itself without self-estrangement. A view of life true to itself without self-estrangement. I like to think that is the spirit of stories. Thank you. Thank you.